From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Last week, we talked about the state of consolidation in the physician space. Today, I want to continue that conversation by talking about consolidation among hospitals and health systems and how COVID-19 is impacting our projections of the future. To do that, I've brought my colleague, Ben Umansky. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ray. What have you been doing to occupy your time while social distancing, while in quarantine? So my habits are, are rather solitary ones to begin with. I'm a chess player. I'm a bridge player. I love to read. And so social distancing has really just been the absence of distraction for me. But I will tell you, it is, uh, it is something I miss being outdoors. I do miss the hiking. But uh, no, I, my brushing up on my bridge game has been the big focus. Tell us a little bit more about what you do for Advisory Board. Sure. So I've been with Advisory Board just about 13 years now, and, and almost all of that time has been spent leading research teams. So, you know, if you, if you see our work and you see the slides and the memos and the papers that we put out, uh, for a long time, I was in charge of a lot of that. These days, I spend a lot more of my time talking than writing. I present our insights. I facilitate discussions with executive teams. But if you're asking about topics, it's the big issues of the day. It's consolidation, consumerism, value-based payments. What are the rules of the game? And then help people play the best game they can within them. If we're going to talk about how to play the game well, I want to ground us in understanding what consolidation looked like within hospitals and health systems prior to the pandemic. Level set with me a little bit there. Sure. So consolidation is one of these perennial themes that if you pick up any bit of industry literature going back probably decades and decades, but certainly years and years, you'll be able to find an article that says we're on a march towards consolidation. We're, we're on a march towards mega systems, the death of the independent hospital. And this has been a background theme for quite some time. If we go back to, I don't know what you want to say, pre-pandemic is December, January, you still saw those articles. You still saw deal counts and activity happening. But you also were starting to see, really over the last year or so, quite a few deals that didn't end up happening. You know, deals that were announced but didn't go through. And the industry was starting to wake up to this idea that maybe it's not quite as inevitable. And maybe it's not always the right answer. And we were starting to ask why. And then this happened. And now we're right back to all the articles about consolidation is inevitable, crisis equals consolidation. So I wonder where we're going, but, but that's where we were. So I've seen a lot of these articles over the last few years, too. And they're sort of predicting this extreme view of what hospitals will look like in the United States. Maybe there's six, maybe there's 10, maybe there's four, uh, you know, a north, south, east, west mega healthcare system. Do you actually think that is likely? Oh, I don't think that we'll get as low as four. Look, there's clearly a movement towards consolidation, and and most of those deals involve a reduction in the number of entities. There are some deals where one system divests an asset that's picked up by another one, and so the number of organizations doesn't really change. But in general, yeah, there's a slow movement. I am not one, and I, and I speak for myself here, I'm not one that predicts a dozen or two dozen in any strategically relevant time frame. Hmm. You know, you think about the number of iterations of having that would have to happen to get us down to that. I think we're a ways away. Doesn't mean we won't have consolidation. Though. 
So let's not hide the ball then. What is the near to medium term that you are expecting? Is it more mergers? Well, first of all, uh, we should be clear that not all hospital transactions are mergers. It's M and A for a reason. And there is a difference between a merger and an acquisition. It's especially complicated in the not-for-profit space. And I don't really want to get into that. The lawyers and the bankers care about this sort of thing. Strategically, I think about it a little differently. Hmm. How do you think about it? I think about the strategic aims of the two parties. And not to use too technical of a term, but I think about the want-to deals and the have-to deals. Hmm. That there are organizations that are entering into some kind of transaction because essentially they don't see another choice. Uh, The world has developed not necessarily to their advantage, and this is the time to make the deal. That's different from organizations that enter into transactions because they see an opportunity. There is something they are trying to achieve. Scale is the way forward for that. And I think those are profoundly different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that there's going to be moments when two organizations want to come together or when two organizations have to, right? They're kind of forced in a way to scramble to get some scale. Is there a combination between the two? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, So the want to, have to deals are probably the ones that are going to accelerate most coming out of of the COVID crisis. You know, we're talking here about, on the one side, the stereotypical struggling community hospital. It's barely been holding on to its independence. Its last six board meetings are about how do we stay independent? How do we stay independent? Fending off offers. On the other side, you have a large system, big war chest, dented by COVID, but, but certainly not damaged beyond repair with the opportunity to uh, to take advantage of some distress assets. And those two meeting, the, the, the first finally saying this is the time, the second saying I've got the money, I think you're going to see a lot of deals like that. When I think about this third category of the want to and the have to, I think it makes sense that right now there are certainly more have tos. The kind of financial impact that the pandemic has had on our industry means there are more organizations may be falling into that have-to category. But I'm curious if there are actually more want-tos because they too have been financially hit because of COVID. It's a great question. And I'll be honest with you, Ray, I don't know the answer in aggregate. Uh, There are certainly organizations that have probably dropped out of the want-to category, right? An organization that was thinking about some grand adventures, was thinking about some acquisitive growth, and COVID has forced them to stay at home, uh, to get some things right with their operations, probably slowing down some of that activity. But at the same time, there are organizations that recognize that the world needs to look different, Mm -hmm. and scale may be a way to build something really built for the future rather than for the past. Uh, So I think you'll see people going both ways on on the one-two question. And as people are pursuing this level of scale, I have to admit, the researcher in me is remembering all of the ambitious deals that never actually panned out, right? Think about Baylor Scott & White and Memorial Hermann or Jefferson and Einstein or so many more. We're going to see more players use this crisis as potentially an opportunity. But how do organizations ensure that these deals don't just fall through. 
Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, again, this was something that we were seeing a lot of over the last year or so, and even through the COVID crisis, deals that had been announced, plug gets pulled. Some of that is regulatory. So, you know, you see the FTC challenging that merger in Philly, really the first merger that they've challenged in a number of years, signaling potentially a more aggressive stance going forward. But you see even more deals where one party or the other says, you know, I don't think this is right. Maybe it's a personality conflict. Maybe it's a cultural misalignment. But a lot of times, if you really scratch under the surface, you recognize that the parties have recognized that there might not really be the value there. And that's the big open question. Is that calculus different now? Does scale matter more now than it did before? Because if we're in the same world we were in January, then I'm still looking for an answer of how systems are going to truly generate value from being bigger. That's right. And we had a conversation very early in Radio Advisory about this exact topic. Does scale, does systemness actually help you in a crisis? And I should mm -hmm. admit that we had that conversation really in the beginning of the initial surge. So I want to ask you that question now. Does size and scale actually prove to be useful in a world of COVID? Well, during the pandemic itself, which I guess we're still during, during the early phases, the real crisis, people don't know if they can make payroll, you know, the, the, the March and April timeframe. I think it's clear that scale was helpful, at least in an operational and a financial sense. You know, these larger systems had more cash on hand. They had more secure access to capital. They had simply more ability and more, more function to manage their finances to get through that rough patch. They also were able to pivot the use of resources, so shipping staff and PPE. I actually just got off the phone with an executive at a large national chain. She said, I couldn't name them because they, they, you got to go through illegal. And I asked her about this five minutes before I got on the phone with you. But this executive told me, and I asked her this question point blank, exactly as you close it to me, was it helpful to be big? And she says, absolutely, because they were able to not just move stuff, you know, PPE, masks, people, etc. But to move ideas, hmm. that this is a system that has hospitals in states that got hit early, states that are getting hit now, states that haven't gotten hit yet. And so they're able to see what it's going to look like in a practical sense. That kind of scale, that systemness of intellect is too often uncaptured in normal times. Right now, you're seeing people able to, to draw on that. And I think that's a fantastic advantage if you can use it. And it doesn't come automatically. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. The battle against COVID-19 continues. And we at the advisory board could not be more grateful for the continued commitment of our healthcare heroes on the front lines. In hopes of bringing a bright spot to your day, we've collected over 50 remarkable stories of strength, teamwork, generosity, and victory from your peers. And we've posted them at our website, advisory.com slash a bright spot. We hope that you will visit this page on those days when you just need a boost. Thank you for being our bright spot.
I, I like these examples that you're giving of some other ways that scale is actually beneficial, even in a crisis. I'm curious if you can tell me a couple of other reasons why it is so important for hospitals and health systems to get bigger and why they want so much scale in the market. Sure. Well, let me first of all just caveat that I I don't want to suggest that I am an unabashed advocate for scale. In fact, I, I would consider myself a skeptic in most senses. But there are potential benefits. And if systems are going to be bigger, they should be trying to get those benefits. So, so let's talk about what some of those might be. Here's an example. Here's another COVID example for you. North Shore in Chicago, multi-hospital system, extended footprint, concentrated in a market, was able to designate one of its hospitals as a COVID hospital, right? All the COVID patients go there. Everybody else goes somewhere else. It's more complicated than that, but that's the idea. <laughs> and you can see why that makes some sense, right? You can keep people quarantined. You can keep people safe. And we would call that a structural advantage. That same idea is what we talk about all the time with respect to service line rationalization. Maybe we should have one facility that does open heart programs and not do those at the other hospitals. It's very difficult, absent crisis, for people to go that direction, but it's still the right answer in many cases. So whether there's value in scale depends as much on whether executives are willing to pursue it and make those difficult decisions as whether there's some theoretical benefit, uh, which there always is. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, I too am a skeptic when I see some of these things happening, in part, like I said, because some so many deals have fallen apart, but also because... I often hear about the flashpoints that bureaucracy can create. Your example about transferring ideas is actually a really good one. I think in most scenarios, that transfer of intellect is actually extremely slow and extremely difficult to get out to multiple hospitals, multiple physician practices, et cetera. And I hear a lot of groups say, you know, we made decisions in the middle of the pandemic that would have taken us four months or maybe even a couple of years to make decisions on in the past. And we want to keep harnessing that speed. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to leaders who are looking to keep that sort of innovation moving into the future? You know, there are a lot of systems right now that have built the instant response teams. And part of that process as it winds down is to study what went right and what went wrong. What I would tell people is to make sure that we dig deeper on some of those those good habits and really figure out why we were able to do them. Is there anything COVID-specific about why this system was able to exchange good ideas? Is there anything that really depends on there being a pandemic? Or was it that we finally decided, you know what, we should talk to our colleagues? Yep. We, we should put some of the politics, we should put some of the bureaucracy behind us and do what's right for our patients. And I think a lot of cases, if we dig down and really study it, we'll notice that. I hope this is a time where a lot of good habits uh, start to stick. I totally agree. One of the benefits of COVID is it's forced even the biggest organizations to think small and to put together that small team that is then empowered to make decisions for their community, for their market, maybe it's even for multiple markets. And that's something that just didn't exist six months ago or would have just been pushed back on dramatically. That's right. That's right. What you're talking about now brings me back to where we started, which is this idea that 
over a long enough timeline, perhaps there are only a dozen health systems in the United States. And it's not just partnerships at the state level or across several states. We're really talking about mega health systems, mega mergers. As organizations see the value of scale in a pandemic, does that change at all your opinion on the pace towards something that might look like a mega merger? It doesn't change my opinion on the pace. Nobody ever notices the fission. We notice the fusion, but not the fission. I'll give you an example. If you look at the cover of Modern Healthcare, I think it was August sometime 2013. I have it on my desk, which is why I know the date. It said, survival of the biggest question mark, CHS HMA merger raises the bar for scale. And the graphic was a giant fish eating a bunch of little fish. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened with that deal? That system put together literally hundreds of hospitals and then spun them off and sold them off and is still in the process of approaching the size the market wants it to be. Hmm. This happens all the time. So for me to think about whether we're going to get to any number of mega systems, yes, let's ask the question of how many deals happen. But let's also ask the question of, do those deals stay together? Do they prove to be successful? Mm -hmm. That glue is just as important as uh, the deal happening to begin with. And this is really important because it's not just about having the cash and the capital and the ability to actually get bigger. It's about all of the things that happen after you sign on the dotted line. And I think that's what you talk about when you say we need to build systemness. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, think of the examples of people benefiting from scale. You know, I've mentioned some of them to you. Uh, Converting one hospital, exchanging the ideas across a large system, even just getting the financial management right. All of that was possible because those systems had laid a foundation for the effective transfer of information, for the appropriate delegation of authority, right? That work was done before. And that's the work of systemness. And it's hard. And too often it doesn't happen. But if we want the value of scale, we have to put in the effort up front so that when we need it, we're prepared. I find when I have conversations with healthcare leaders that the topic of systemness can be tricky to define, right? We know that the whole needs to be better than the sum of its parts, but what that means in practice or really understanding the meat behind it, I find can be difficult. What do you say to healthcare leaders when you define systemness? I define systemness as the ability to do difficult things because of your scale, not in spite of it. Hmm. Now, whether that's a helpful definition, I don't know, but that's that's the best one that makes sense to me. The next question, though, is how you get there. And and this is where people want an easy button. They want a roadmap that if I should just do these five things and make my org chart look like like that one, then problem solved. And, And it's not as easy as that. The metaphor that comes to mind for me, did, did you ever in elementary school uh, have to make uh, like, a, like a mug, like a coffee mug out of clay? You take it home to your parents. Am I hmm. the only person this happened to? I don't know where you're going with this, but I don't think I have. All right. I'm out on a limb here. Let's see if I can pull it back. So I had to do this and I did it wrong. I made the mug. I made the handle. I stuck them together, took it home. A week later, it falls apart. Okay. What I was missing, does this ring a bell? Do you know what I'm missing now? No. Yep. Okay, Ray was not, a, not an art student. <laughs> I was not. <laughs> what you have to do, Ray, and you can't just glue it, you have to crosshatch 
where the two parts attach. You take a, a, a little stick or a you know, file or something, and you scratch like little X's on both sides, and you push it together. And if you do that, the clay bonds, and it holds, and you can stick it in the microwave or whatever. If you don't do that, you have the illusion of a bonded piece. And this is what systems do. They, they merge, they acquire, they have some legal structure that smush two things together. And then they recognize that it's, that it's not quite holding. And they maybe slather some glue on it. And then they get a mess that still doesn't hold. What's missing is the hard and extra and invisible work of the crosshatching. And that's what we've got to do for systemness. You have to upset some people. You have to make some difficult decisions. You have to add some steps to the process with a view towards long-run durability. And that's what doesn't happen. Hmm. And you can't do it after you smush the pieces. you got to be thinking about this going in. You know, Ben, you almost lost me for a moment, but you brought it back together in the end because at best, you're left with a mess, and at worst, everything falls apart. Well, that's uplifting. <laughs> I should I should take something back, though, right? I said you have to do it at the beginning. And in a coffee mug, that's true. There are systems out there that still have every opportunity to strengthen their systems, to do more. It still does take that hard work. But I don't want to give the impression that all is lost if it's not handled at the beginning. It's easier if it's handled at the beginning. But that shouldn't that shouldn't frighten someone from doing the difficult work now. And that actually brings me to my final question. What would you tell healthcare leaders that are considering this challenge of how do I generate more scale and actually get the benefits of that scale right now? I would ask them to focus on the second part of your question, not the first. So how much scale you have is far less important than how much benefit you get from it. And I would remind them that, God willing, we will not get this opportunity again. All right. This this is a terrible year. This is a, a challenge that healthcare is still it's still not clear how we make it out of this. But assuming that we do, we had better come out better than we went in. The chance to have the difficult conversations, to demand and to ourselves make the necessary sacrifices, to understand what is really necessary and where value really lies. It's on a silver platter right now, the answers to those questions. What a shame if all we should have to show at the end of this is a death count. Yeah. What a shame if this doesn't let us solve some of the problems for next year's patients, for 10 years from now's patients. Let's get it right. That is so right. Ben, thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. We'll talk to you later. All right. Take care. As Ben said, it's not just about predicting who's going to be getting bigger or what the world of hospitals and health systems will look like in five or 10 years. It's about doing the work to actually make purposeful deals that stick. And I'm talking about the deals that support physicians and patients and ultimately the health system strategy, even in the face of a crisis like COVID-19. As always, remember, we're here to help.
think about bridge and it's a, a habit of the elderly often. And so uh, it's been a big movement in the bridge community towards online, similar to telemedicine and healthcare, where it's always been there. Now we have to use it. 